This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And you know, today we want to talk about something that's really fun. We're going to talk about how some of our children's hospitals actually use dogs and they're beneficial to those young patients. We're going to be talking to Laura Sonnefeld, who is the Facility Dog Program Coordinator at Cook Children's Hospital located in Fort Worth. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here this morning. You know, to help our listeners kind of grasp and understand this, can you first define what is a facility dog? Absolutely. So a facility dog is a professionally trained dog that will work alongside um, an employee of a facility. So, for example, at our hospital, all of our dogs work alongside a healthcare worker in their role in the hospital. The dogs are here to work alongside their handlers and they help provide therapeutic interventions, um, help provide calm and anxiety reduction, motivation, encouragement, a little bit of laughter and normalcy in a very abnormal setting such as a hospital. From Cook Children's point of view, why do you think these facility dogs are beneficial to your patients? The facility dogs are hugely beneficial because they're providing uh, patient satisfaction, Uh, not only patient satisfaction, but parent satisfaction as well. We have lots of kids that are here for the first time, never had to be hospitalized, and when they see something normal that they would see on the outside world, such as a friendly dog, it helps to bring their anxiety down, Um, and we notice that there's lots of beneficial wellness reasons for interacting with a dog that has been researched, and we are seeing those benefits every single day with the work that our dogs do across the medical center. Can you tell us a little bit about the dogs you use? Is it a certain breed that you use, or is there anything unique about these dogs? Absolutely. So all of our dogs have come from two different groups called one is canine assistance and one is canine companions. Both of these programs breed and train facility dogs and service dogs. So all of them are Golden Retrievers or Labradors, or we have two Golden Doodles as well in our program. Um, And they all go through a pretty intense training um, from essentially the time that they are little puppies. Um, They go through training at their facilities with their foster families um, until they're ready for placement at a facility. So in our program, we have three Golden Retrievers, one Labrador Retriever, and two Golden Doodles. You know, when you use these facility dogs, what different departments do they help within the hospital? Absolutely. So we have a a variety of disciplines that are dog handlers. So a majority of our dog handlers are child life specialists, and our child life specialists work across the inpatient and outpatient areas all over our hospital. In particular, we have a child life specialist that works in the hematology and oncology inpatient unit with their dog, Chanel. And then we have another dog who works in our rehabilitation and transitional care unit, and that is Bree. Um, Both of these dogs specifically work with their child life handlers in those two populations. 
And then we also have a dog, Zuni, who works in our behavioral health program. She works both on the outpatient and inpatient side of that program. Our dog, Kitty, works in our care team clinic, which is um, the clinic where patients are coming for um, exams for trauma or physical abuse. And last but not least, we have Steve and Neely who cover a broad variety of patient populations across the hospital, and they take referrals um, across about eight different inpatient units, um, serving anywhere from gastroenterology to endocrinology to post-surgery, just a variety of different diagnoses that those dogs can see. To help our listeners kind of visualize this and You mentioned inpatient and outpatient in the various departments. How exactly do the dogs interact with the patient? Absolutely. That's a good question. So on the inpatient side, our dogs are visiting kids that will be staying the night, and it could be anywhere from a few nights to we have patients that are here for months at a time. Um, The dogs are able to go in and out of each of the patient's rooms, ones that want to be visited, and they work alongside their handler. So, for example, our child life staff are in and out of those rooms providing normalization, preparation, education for the patients that are here, and the dogs can come alongside them to help calm nerves during maybe a new diagnosis education or preparation for a surgery. And then on the outpatient side, we get a lot of referrals to help with procedural support. For example, um, patients that have to get lab work done or have to get IVs or maybe injections such as the flu shot. Um, I work a lot with my dog, Steve, um, on the outpatient side, and we come and help just provide that distraction or that support and that comfort um, for different procedures that have to be performed on the outpatient side. And with those patients, they are getting to go home at the end of the day. It's just more like a clinic visit or a doctor visit, and then they get to go home at the end of the day. So it looks a little bit different as far as we may see a patient once on the outpatient side, um, but then we may see a patient multiple times over the course of their inpatient stay. You know, I know you mentioned some of the breeds of dogs, but just how does a dog become a facility dog? It's a great question. So the two groups that we have gotten our facility dogs from, um, they only will train dogs that they breed um, themselves within their their entity. Um, There's a lot of DNA and genetics that go into that process. Um, And so they're assessing along the way. Um, But for example, with my dog, Steve, he was one of seven puppies um, in that litter. And five of those dogs all ended up getting facility dog positions at different hospitals across the country. So part of their assessment during the training is they take the dogs to children's hospitals um, and they make assessments of, does it look like the dog's enjoying their work? Um, Do they enjoy engaging with people? Or do you have a dog that maybe is a little bit more anxious being in a group setting or smelling all the smells um, of a hospital? All these dogs are incredibly smart dogs and very well, can be very well trained, but you may have some dogs that would be a better fit to be in service to an individual and be a service dog. They told us they knew pretty early on with Steve that he would thrive in a facility because he is definitely, he shines when he's in a group setting. He makes sure that everyone gets to say hello to him. He spends time with each person. He works the room. Um, So they knew early on that he really enjoyed his work and that he would be a good fit to be in some place more like a facility where he would see lots of different people um, across many different avenues. Well, you know, I've got to tell you, Laura, and I'll make sure Thomas understands this too. I haven't met your dogs, but 
I think Steve <laughs> might be my favorite. I don't know why I say that. He's my you know, favorite you, too, but I'm particular. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you have a program, Sit, Stay, Play. Can you explain to our listeners what that program is? Yes, sir. So Sit, Stay, Play is the facility dog program that was started at Cook Children's back in 2014. We started with two facility dogs and have grown since then. Um, at this point, we have six full-time facility dogs that work alongside healthcare workers. Isn't this a great story? Talk about the human side of healthcare. We'll hear more about the facility dog program at Cook Children's from the coordinator, Laura Sonefeld, when we come back. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We are talking about a wonderful program in Fort Worth at Cook Children's Hospital, the Facility Dog Program. Laura Sonefeld is the coordinator, and this is a program that benefits the kids, the patients, their families, the parents, and the staff. Talk about a triple win. So they have a program called Sit, Stay, Play. Laura, can you tell us what that's about? Yes, sir. So Sit, Stay, Play is the facility dog program that was started at Cook Children's back in 2014. We started with two facility dogs and have grown since then. Um, at this point, we have six full-time facility dogs that work alongside healthcare workers. Um, we have, so they are working together with their their handlers, their people, um, and they get to go wherever their handler goes in the hospital. Um, we have some restrictions around isolation um, where the dogs cannot go, but in general, the dogs get to do anything they can alongside their their healthcare workers. But the goal behind the whole program was to provide just another layer of therapeutic interventions um, at the hospital. As I don't know if either of you guys have kids or have had to have an experience where you've brought your child to a hospital, but the hospital is a very intimidating environment for kids and parents alike. And if we can provide just one more layer of comfort for both the patients and the parents, um, then that's something that we want to be able to provide to all of the people that come into our doors. I will say there are definitely times where I walk into a room with Steve and he immediately goes to mom or dad instead of the patient. And most likely it's because mom or dad are the ones that are very anxious and need that extra comfort. And so he really is here. Our dogs are not just here for the patients, but they're here for the family unit overall. Let me ask you this. On the sit, stay, and play program, how is that funded? That's a great question. Our program is completely donor-funded. Um, we The program began because um, we had some pretty big supporters in our community who felt like this program definitely was something that was needed and would be beneficial to our community. And our program continues to be run completely by donors. Um, we have we work with our foundation and our marketing team here at the hospital to continue to reach new donors, to get the support, provide stories. We do have a social media um, Instagram that is pretty popular, if I do say so myself. But that just helps us to get our story out about what our dogs and their handlers are doing here at the hospital. And we definitely completely rely on everything we can in order to provide all of our handlers and their teams with anything they need 
Our dogs are living, breathing animals, and so they have food needs, they have toy needs, they have vet needs, um, and all of that is completely covered by our donor-funded program. No family is ever going to receive a bill for meeting one of our facility dogs or benefiting from any of their services, and we would like to keep it that way. For our listeners out there that may want to help support this program, what do you suggest? Uh, what I would suggest is if you are an Instagram um, person to follow us on our Instagram at sit, stay, play underscore CC. Um, that is where you'll see just a lot of our dogs in action, seeing what they're getting, what they get to do in the hospital. Um, but we also have on our Cook Children's website, which is cookchildrens.org, we do have a page that provides even more information about our program overall, um, a little more information specifically about each dog and their handlers and where they work in the hospital, um, but also provides a link for where we are able to accept donations. We do have a wish list of items that are regularly needed by our pups, and so that would be a great place to start if you want to learn even more about what um, the impact is that our facility dog handler teams are having on the patients, families, and staff here at Cook Children's. Laura, we've been through, obviously, an unprecedented two years in our current modern history. As you take a big step back, have there been any elements of this that jumped out and kind of surprised you? Maybe a couple of things that you weren't expecting that were added benefits? Well, I think in light of, you know, still surviving and being in in a pandemic right now, one of the biggest things that we have noticed is that People we have all the time think that our dogs are just here for patients and families, but the reality is that our dogs are hugely therapeutic for our staff as well. Um, we, Whenever we walk onto a unit to go visit patients, I always am very intentional about swinging Steve by the nurse's station to check in with them. Um, Provide a few minutes of Steve, you know, playing with them or sitting in their lap allows them some levity and allows them to take a deep breath before they have to go back into what is a pretty stressful job. And so I think it's hugely important for people to know that, like, our dogs really are making a huge impact on literally every person that walks into the medical center. Um, and that has, we've been able to, during the last almost two years now, been able to be a little more intentional about spending time specifically with staff, helping them with debrief through maybe a traumatic or a stressful situation. And it's pretty amazing to see our dogs walk into a group setting of staff members and you can feel everybody take a like collective deep breath and you can witness like the magic of Steve just walks around and make sure everyone's doing okay, then goes to the next person and checks in with them. And all of our dogs have that it just intuition built into their personality. They know who to go to. They know who needs them the most. And um, we let them direct that <laughs> a lot of the times. Um, and it's pretty amazing to see that impact. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible. You know, I was thinking back, Steve and I have uh, not only seen a few New Year's Eve celebrations in our life. We've seen a lot of decade changes in our life. And one of the things that I remember back in the day is you could smoke on an airplane and they would absolutely (laughs) not allow animals on the plane. Well, now Uh you can't smoke on the plane and you can't have animals. So do you think this is a change that will permeate some of the future for not only healthcare, but even how a lot of us handle things after this pandemic has taken so much from us over the last two years? I do think there's been a newfound appreciation for our pets. 
we do often get families that ask us, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, the impact that your dogs had on our child when we were here um, was amazing. We, we want a dog like y'all's dogs at home. And I always tell people, get a dog. Dogs in general have that intuition built into them. Even if our dogs were not trained like they were, I guarantee they would still have the intuition that they do. Um, That isn't something that I feel like is really taught to them. That is natural to them. So we do. You have this understanding that when you get home, for those of you who have pets or dogs, is that greeting, your dog loves you no matter what, no matter how stressful a day, and they just want to give you unconditional love. And so I do hope that people do see and understand like truly the impact that our animals can have on us and truly understand and appreciate the work that our dogs are putting in every single day. And in light of saying that as well, you know, we have some days where Steve's moving a little bit slower in the work day and it's because he has seen and felt all of the emotions of all of the people that we have come into contact with. And that can take a toll on him. He does need to get rest. And it's the same thing for our pets at home. So we do need to be mindful of like, yeah, they want to give us never ending love. um, But we also need to be mindful of taking care of them as well and making sure they get the breaks that they need. Well, you're talking about the ultimate empath here, aren't you? Somebody that can walk into the room and feel the energies of the people in that room. Absolutely. He picks up on every single emotion, which oftentimes there's more than one (laughs) that occurs. And he feels all of that. And, you know, there are times where he just gets to cuddle up and get into a bed with a patient and he falls asleep. And we have people that'll be like, oh, it must be nice to sleep on the job. (laughs) And I have to be like, well, you know, he is a dog. He gets to sleep on the job. But what he's also doing right now is he's modeling how to relax. He's modeling how to bring the anxiety down in a room. And he's telling people that it's okay to take a break. Take a deep breath. I'm here. We're going to snuggle for a little bit. And that's all you need to do right now. You know, there are some belief systems that we might come back for another life after this one. And some people believe we might even come back as animals. I don't know that coming back as one of your dogs wouldn't be that bad of a gig. (laughs) We we have people say that a lot. They said these dogs have a pretty good little job. And I said, I agree completely. They get love and attention all day long. And that's usually what most dogs, all they want is just love and attention from people that love them. You mentioned an Instagram account, and a picture is worth a thousand words. How would people find you on Instagram? Um, you can look up at sitstayplay underscore cc. Um, and there's a gorgeous picture of all six of our dogs on our profile picture that we just took recently. Um, and we try to post pictures of all of our dogs as they all very much have different personalities and different skill sets. They're all doing amazing work, but they definitely do it in their own way, um, which is another fun thing too. As people get to know about our dogs or get to know them, they realize that Steve is the goofball. Bree is a little bit of the, she's got a little bit of a sass when she walks. Chanel is our matriarch and she is the cool, calm and collected one. (laughs) And it's fun to get to know that all these dogs are very different, but also really excellent at their jobs in their own way. Well, you not only showed us the human side of healthcare today, Laura, you've shown us the canine side of healthcare, and thank you for that. Absolutely. Happy to share about our program as I really feel like it makes a big impact. Thank you, Laura. You have just been a delight for telling us about the dog program that helps patients and their families at Cook Children's. Now, when we come back, Liz Petty from Parkland Health joins us to talk about something that always seems to pop up this time of year, and that is keeping our kids and our families safe from poisons in our own homes. Next on the Human Side of Healthcare.
Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know that horrible moment when you realize one of your children has ingested some type of poison is something that we all need to learn about. There's a poison control resource available for you here in North Texas, and we're going to talk about it. We've got Liz Petty with us today. She's not only a master's of public health, but a public health educator and is at the North Texas Poison Control Center located at Parkland Memorial Hospital. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, how do you define insecticide versus pesticide? Sure. So we use pesticide as a more general term. So pesticide is really anything that is used to kill, control, repel pests. And then if you want to specify, um, insecticides are specially made to kill, uh, to harm or repel an insect or maybe more than one insect. Um, and we use these things almost every day, right? It might be from, from air to roach sprays. Pesticides can include things like weed killers. Um, So a big, broad term would be pesticides. And then if you want to get specific, we talk about insecticides. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So if you think in terms of just insecticides for a minute, how do you perceive that they work to do their job? Yeah, so we usually purchase insecticides because we want to get rid of an insect or multiple insects. And so by getting rid of them, we want to kill them. And so what a lot of insecticides do is they target the central nervous system, which means they kill those insects by paralyzing them, right? You usually see the bug and it's still kind of kicking its legs up and eventually it stops where we, or else we can find insecticides that just repel. So keep them away from your home or control them. What are the types of chemicals that you know about that are contained in insecticides? There are lots of different chemicals that are in use. Um, in terms of what concerns us from a poison center perspective are usually uh, these chemicals that are used called either pyrethroids, like I mentioned earlier, or some that are called organophosphates, which are a little stronger and more harmful. And so in, in terms of chemicals, we usually like to divide them from pyrethroids and organophosphates. Those aren't the only ones, but those are the main ones that we can find in products that we can purchase either at a grocery store or places like Home Depot. What insecticides are safe, especially for pets outdoors, and which ones are particularly safe indoors? Yeah, so really, we don't really have any specific brands that we normally point to. The most important thing to look out in terms of using insecticides, whether it's outdoor or indoor, is to read the label. So most of the time, that label is going to say safe for indoor use only or safe for indoor and outdoor use. Or it might say, you know, when you use a product to keep your pets away for X amount of time. So the most important thing to do as far as when picking a product is to simply read the label. So when does insecticide poisoning occur? Yeah, so it's usually when we're actually using the products. Um, and you poisonings can occur through ingestion or inhalation or by touch. Um, and usually when we use the product incorrectly is when most poisonings happen. 
um, or if a child gets a hold of it unintentionally. So let's say you spray and you don't actually leave the area like the label mentioned and you breathe it in and maybe get some symptoms of dizziness or headache or vomiting or you leave use a product and you leave it out and here comes your child and gets a little hold of it, right? So poisonings usually occur accidentally, but they can all really be prevented when we put these products up or use them correctly. Are natural and organic insecticides safer to use? What we like to say is that natural or organic doesn't necessarily equal safe. There's a lot of natural things that aren't necessarily safe, right? Let's think of, for example, poison ivy. Poison ivy is natural, but it's not safe. Um, a lot of those products, they can be misleading. Why? Well, because they'll often term it as natural because they put some kind of essential oil on it. But in the label, there might be another added chemical. It might be a pyrethroid-based product. But because it contains a natural-like product, it's advertised natural. There are essential oils that are not safe either. And so don't be um, fooled by the label. It's still take your precautions read the label, use proper protective equipment if the label calls for it. You know, I know we have the North Texas Poison Center, which we're very thankful for. But let's assume I'm at home, out in the yard, not wearing a mask properly, and I get insecticide on my face or in my eyes. What are things I can do at home before I call the Poison Control Center? Oh, great question. So there are some first aid steps you can actually take. So in cases where you inhale it, so in the example that you gave, the treatment that you want to take right away is to get away from the source. And if you're indoors, to go outdoors and get some fresh air. If you're spraying the product indoors, turn on the fan, open the windows, get some ventilation going in the area. So the first step is to get fresh air immediately. If you get it in your eyes, rinse your eyes out for at least 10 minutes before you call us. And then you call the poison center and we may say, you know what, you've already taken all the steps. Or we might say, you know what, 10 minutes isn't enough. Maybe you need to do it for an additional 5 or 10. Same for the skin. Rinse the skin off for at least 10 to 15 minutes and then call us. Um, And so those are first aid steps you can take. But if you don't remember any of that, no worries. Put the number in your phone and call us so we can tell you what to do right away. Let me give you that same example. Let's assume I accidentally ingested some insecticide and I began to have an immediate allergic reaction. Should I take Benadryl immediately or should I call the poison center first? In that scenario, first let me tell you what you should not do. In any case, you should never induce vomiting, right, to make yourself throw up. Because we still, we still hear of a lot of people who think that's the first thing you should do is try to get the poison out. But that actually can cause more harm than good. The second thing that we say is don't take anything unless you've called us first. So you definitely don't want to take Benadryl unless we've told you it's safe to do so. Um, and there's really other home remedies that we hear about, like people saying drink milk. Um, well, no, you call us first to make sure we give you the correct steps. Now, if you are having a true medical emergency, like you can't breathe, um, then you call 911, right? Because we um, offer treatment over the phone, and if somebody can't breathe, there's not a whole lot we can do over the phone. So just keep in mind that we're a great resource, but for true medical emergencies, call 911. 
Let's assume I'm taking a prescribed medication by a physician and I begin to have an allergic reaction. Should I call the poison control center? Absolutely. You can always call the poison center. Now, you definitely want to get try to get in contact with your physician first who prescribed the medication. But if you're unable to get a hold of your prescription, we're definitely a great line of defense. Give us a call. Our specialists have lots of information on side effects of medications, and we may be able to tell you whether or not you should go to the doctor or emergency room. So usually a lot people who call the poison center save themselves a trip to the emergency room um, because often they think, oh, I need to go to the ER. No, just call us first and we'll tell you what to do. So if you are thinking you're having an allergic reaction and you can't get a hold of your physician, definitely give us a call. Let's assume I'm at home, get bitten by an insect or exposed to some type of insecticide and have a severe reaction that starts restricting my breathing. Shouldn't I call 911 first and then the poison center? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Once you've called 911, uh, you can definitely call us for additional support. Or often, um, people might not know is that if you call for an ambulance, they usually will call us, especially when it comes to bites and stings. Um, when you're en route to the hospital, EMS gives us a call so they know what to do. Um, so no worries. Um, at some point or another, poison control is going to get a call, whether it's from you, EMS, or even the doctor in the hospital. In all of these calls that are coming in, I'm assuming, especially when you think in terms of HIPAA and other things, all those calls are confidential, correct? Correct. So your call is strictly between you and the person who answers your phone call. And a lot of the accidents that happen, people are somewhat ashamed. Like they, you know, maybe they left a, the, we're talking about insecticides, maybe they left the product out and their small child got into it. And then maybe they might be ashamed to call. They say, well, I wasn't watching over my child. I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. We know that accidents happen. So know that if you call the poison center, we're not you know, going to call the police on you to get you in trouble or call Child Protective Services because most of those poisoning incidents are accidents. So keep that in mind when you're calling us. It's just completely um, non-judgmental help. You know, that's really good to know because I'm thinking in terms, and I'm going to pivot a little bit away from insecticides and poison control, but let's say you have a toddler that unfortunately got into a detergent and ate one of the pods that contains detergent detergent that you use in laundry, that's certainly an appropriate call to the poison center, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. We get tons and tons of calls like that, especially with those detergent pods, because those tiny little packets are attractive. They smell really good. Um, They're often in a place where children can reach them. And we do get plenty of calls about children who ingest those. So that is definitely a poison control call. Absolutely. A lot of the time, your kid's going to take a bite out of it and spit it out because they realize, wow, it tastes gross. For a very small child, like a one-year-old, two-year-old whose taste buds are still developing, they might think that packet is the most delicious thing they've ever eaten. And so they might eat the whole packet or even more than one. And that situation can be dangerous pretty quick. Here's the phone number to put in your phone, 800-222-1222. The North Texas Poison Center from Parkland Health and Hospital System. From plants to bites to laundry detergent, they can help. We'll have that phone number in the next segment and more with Liz Petty. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're talking to Liz Petty, who is a master's of public health and a public health educator from Parkland Health and Hospital System, talking about accidental poisonings. Their number again is 1-800-222-1222. It's a free service. Steve? One other question I was going to ask you. Let's assume you've prepared a good meal at home, you've eaten it, and then afterwards you start getting sick to the point you think, I've got food poisoning. Would that be an appropriate time to call the poison center? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, food poisoning often comes on pretty quickly after if you've eaten some undercooked um, or improperly prepped foods. And so definitely give us a call if you are concerned about food poisoning. Um, Now, do be careful with food poisoning because often, you know, you're vomiting or you have diarrhea and it can cause dehydration. So you want to make sure that, you know, drinking plenty of fluids um, to prevent dehydration, which is when it becomes pretty dangerous. I'm going to hand it off to Thomas so he can have some questions. But before I go, do you have any final thoughts or nuggets of knowledge for our listeners? Yeah, Steve. So I do want to make an important point that although we're talking about insecticides and pesticides and more chemical-like substances, it's important to know that most of our poisonings occur with medications, okay? Especially with small children, whether it's misuse of medications among adolescents or abusing them. Um, And of course, you might've heard of an opioid epidemic going on as well. Um, And so medication safety is very important, keeping them up and out of reach of your children because not only um, do they look like candy, they often taste like candy. And for adolescents, because they often report that the first time they've abused a medication is from their parents' um, own medicine cabinet. Um, So medicine should be definitely be in the back of everyone's mind as far as where to store it and keeping it um, in a safe area. Liz, what chemicals are in most of these home-based pesticides? The most common chemical you'll find are called pyrethroids. Um, And when you get exposed to that chemical, because it does affect the central nervous system of insects, if you get it on your skin or accidentally ingested, you'll kind of get this like tingling and pin and needle sensation. In really severe cases, uh, seizures can happen. And pesticide and insecticide poisonings that are not treated can be very harmful and even cause death. And a more serious chemical is organophosphate insecticides. But these you see generally used more in commercial settings like farms or outdoors. But you can find products at stores like Lowe's or Home Depot's with organophosphate. Now, these poisonings can be really dangerous. They can be absorbed through the body. Um, they can be inhaled. They can um, be in, you know, ingested. And these will cause more severe symptoms. And It'll cause you to sweat a lot. It kind of makes everything wet. So you sweat a lot, you tear up a lot, you start vomiting, you have diarrhea. Um, In really dangerous cases, your lungs can uh, fill with fluids. Um, Seizures are a risk and even death. So when we get calls about organophosphate poisonings, um, let's say from a hospital, we usually recommend healthcare providers to completely gear up 
because if the patient is vomiting, if they have diarrhea and they're exposed to those fluids, they can actually come in contact with those fluids and get poisoning themselves. So they can definitely be quite harmful. What about these companies that come spray your home? What chemicals are they using? Right. So it's important to always ask that serve that provider what kind of product they're using, right? Because you call them, they come out to your home and often we have no idea what they're using. And if you call poison control and you say, hey, somebody just came out and sprayed my house. Well, we have also no idea. Ask them for what product they're using because if they come and spray and all of a sudden you're having some kind of symptoms and you have documentation of what it is they sprayed, it really helps poison control, figure out what next steps to take. But they can be using both pyrethroids or organophosphates or other chemical products. So always, always ask what kind of product, because it's really hard for us to figure that out, right? It's kind of like a puzzle. Um, But oftentimes these chemicals present themselves in unique ways. So often we can tell maybe what possible agent could be responsible for some those symptoms. Okay, now look, I eat organic and I try to minimize my own exposure to these kinds of things, but you just brought up an excellent point. And that is whenever you are going to be in an environment of exposure, find out what it is that they are using. Exactly, yeah, something not a lot of people think of. Um, And that just really reminds me of plants, right? Like when we're we're using often we want to decorate our yard and we plant some pretty flowers or bushes, right? We don't keep the labels as to what kind of plant that is. Um, so anytime you're putting something new in your home, keep those tags, keep those labels always as a reference because oftentimes we want to also spray our house, make sure to keep the weeds out, maybe use an herbicide and maybe your child got into the plant or something and you have no idea what kind of plant it is and you're trying to describe it to us. Well, there's, you know, thousands of plants. Keeping that label saves us a lot of time. Okay, now let's transfer to the office because I know offices get sprayed off hours on the weekends. You may not even know the vendor, much less who to call. Let's say you have a reaction. What do you do then? Yeah, so that gets a little tricky, right? But if you're all of a sudden having unusual symptoms, it could be, you know, usually you can blame it on a number and number of things. But I do want to say that most of the times in more like industrial settings, if you're visiting somewhere and you've been at home all day and you're visiting somewhere, sometimes they'll put a sign out that says this lawn has been treated, right? Now it's going to be really, really hard to find out what products they treat with. So unfortunately that does become one of those instances where it can be tricky, but no worries We have toxicologists who are experts at this. And so if at any point you're having symptoms and you go to the doctor or you call poison control, we'll consult with our toxicologists and we'll try to get it figured out for you. Do you think that these products are generally safe or do they cause, in some cases, cancer? Can they be carcinogenic? Yeah, so often those products are labeled as carcinogenic, right? And so um, when misused or used improperly, long term, they definitely can have some health effects. Now, for as, for most of the time, for the, you know, synthetic insecticides or pesticides that we use around our house, if you use it correctly, most of the time we don't consider it unsafe. But there are incidents. I mean, there are, if there are incidents where workers have used some of these products long term and have had cancer in the long run from it. Um, I know there's lawsuits out there. Um, And so, yeah, unfortunately, because some of those health effects are long-term, usually work in the way where 
things don't get banned until something bad happens, right? Um, just because it takes so long for some of those health effects to really kick in, sadly. You know, Monsanto and Roundup have been in the news a lot. Yes, and, yes, and that's you, exactly what I was referring to. Okay, so you do hear a lot of Roundup-related issues? Yeah, absolutely. I always get calls about, you know, just concerns about those products. Um, but yeah, we've seen, you know, there's lawsuits and um, deaths that we've heard ha- happened. And, you know, if you drive by any farms, you probably have seen a crop duster at some point. What are we being exposed to at the grocery store? And what about organics? Yeah, so even organic products can contain some of these products because of rainwater that washes these products out, right? So this product is used, um, it rains, and that product kind of tends to stay in our soil, um, so even with products, you know, even with baby food, if you've heard, you know, just a couple of months ago, there's a big deal about heavy metals in baby food and foods like carrots and sweet potatoes, root-like vegetables. And, you know, the uh, FDA and EPA did limit the amount of heavy metals that we can find in our food and pesticides. But because of pollution and rainwater, a lot of that those things just tend to be in our soil for years and years and years and years. Unfortunately, sometimes unavoidable. Liz Petty from Parkland Health and Hospital System, a wealth of information. Want to give you that number one more time. 1-800-222-1222. Steve? Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you and your family are having a wonderful Labor Day weekend. You know, as we look to next week, it's the anniversary of September 11. We know there's still a lot of anxiety, stress, and angst. So join us as we talk to two mental health professionals on the human side of health care. Have a great rest of Labor Day weekend, and join us next week.